to be back as well. Elizabeth and I were away last week, and thank you to Bill Hood 3 for preaching. Didn't he do a great job? Thank you, and family. It was great, and Elizabeth and I were working uh, with some of our partners as well for several days, a shorter trip, and uh, it went very well, and we'll share more of that later. But thank you, Carl, for introducing this, our uh, catalog for Starfish Treasure, which is a way to give to our missionaries other things besides money. We, of course, give money to our missionaries and things and training, but also they have other needs. If you'd like to participate in it, you can. But this year, as Carl mentioned, we also put a biograph about each of them. We're not doing all our missionaries, so we do several of them and what they need. And we have a biography here so you can pray. It's really a prayer journal because when you open it up, the first page does have a lot of our missionary partners there. And then as you go to each page, talk about what you may want to give or not. And then it talks about each of them. And it's exciting to see because you hear us mention people's names from time to time, and you see videos from time to time, you can actually get some more information. So it's a prayer journal as well. So pick one up as well if you would like to get that, and they're available across the street during the week as well. But we have this all the way through the year. We give all throughout the year. We just emphasize it around Christmas time, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. But our gifts go out year-round. So if you want to give for your birthday in the middle of uh, the summer, please feel free to do that. It's not about just Christmas time, but anytime you'd like to give and you want to do it alternatively instead of giving to yourself or to someone who may not need a gift, give it to some who do need a gift. And here's a great catalog to do that as well. Well, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for all that we've heard this morning and worship and in truth and Thank you, Father, for these reports, exciting how it is of what you're doing around the world in the Far East, in sub-Asia, and throughout the world. We thank you for that. And what you're doing here in Boca Raton, we thank you for that as well. Father, I pray as we open your word up that you would allow us to understand it more than ever before. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So these next two weeks, we have two weeks here around Thanksgiving, and then we have four weeks around the Christmas time, so we're going to start our Christmas time two weeks from now, and Matthew and I are going to preach together, not at the same time, but we're going to alternate, and he'll do a couple of the Christmas services leading up to Christmas, and I'll do a couple of them as well. But today and next Sunday, we're going to go into one of the books of the Bible that I haven't taught on. I want to do some teaching in areas that I haven't taught on. And you know, last year we did a series on little books, big ideas. You remember that? We went into Opadiah and Philemon and Jude. Well, we're going to do another one of those, the second smallest book of the Old Testament. And it's the book of Haggai. Haggai, is that in the Bible? It is. It is. Before you turn there, but it might take some time to find it. What I want you to do, if you have a Bible in front of you, good. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, pick the one up that is in front of you and turn to the table of contents. Can you do that? It either says contents or table of contents or go on your app and find. Can you do that? Because Haggai fits in a place that we know very little about. And I want us to talk about that a little today as we introduce today and next week. So we're only going to talk about the Old Testament today. So there are 39 books in our English Bible. 
in the Jewish Bible, it's a little tighter because they combine some books like Ezra and Nehemiah's one book, and they and First and Second Samuel's one book, the Kings is one book, the Chronicles is one book. So they have a different number of books. So the numbering is not important, but for our English Bibles, we have 39 books of the Old Testament. They fall in three categories: 17, 5, and 17. Can you remember that? Say that. 17, 5, and 17. That equals 39. Okay, so I'm not a mathematician, but I even get this. In the first section of 17, there are two sections of it. There are the first five books of the Bible, so it's five, called the, if I can use a big word, the Pentateuch. If I can use a Jewish word, the Torah. If I can use just a very simple word, the Law of Moses. They're Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This takes us from the beginning of time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all the way through Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel, Noah, the Table of Nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That just gets us through the first book. Then the beginning of Exodus takes us to Moses, And the children of Israel are now in Egypt. And Moses is brought up, and we see Moses in the early chapters of Exodus until we get to Exodus chapter 20, and we have the Ten Commandments. We all know about the Ten Commandments. In the balance of the Pentateuch, or the Law of Moses, it really should be called the Law of God, but it was written by Moses, so we call it the Law of Moses, takes us through the 40 years that it took the children of Israel, to get back from Egypt, back into the promised land. And at the end of Deuteronomy, that's the end of the five books. Then we have 12 more books, right? 17 books. They're called the books of history. They're the history of the Old Testament and the history of the Jewish people. And that goes from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. If you want to read the story of the Old Testament, you read from Genesis to Esther. You don't have to read Psalms. You don't have to read some of the other ones. I want you to read them, but if you want the history, Genesis through Esther. So it takes us starting with Joshua back into the land. Remember Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and all those things, and Joshua and Caleb and the the people took the land back. They're back now in the promised land which is the same promised land that is being argued about today over in Israel, right? It's the same geography right there. And that's what they took back over. And then it was the time of the judges, and then it was the time of the priests, then it was the time of the kings, and we had Saul and David and Solomon. And then the kingdom split in two. If I can do it this way, north and south. They split in two. And so you had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. And there were all the kings of the northern kingdom were bad kings. It was just a bad time. If you lived in the north, which was Samaria, Galilee, that whole area, it was terrible. The southern kingdom around Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron had some good kings, had some bad kings, had some good kings, had some bad kings. So what happened was that... 
the Assyrians came down and took the 10 tribes away. This is now about 722 BC, and they took the tribes away. This is what is important to know. They never came back. They never came back. So you wonder, why are there Jews all over the world? Have you ever thought of that? If you go anywhere in the world, you'll find a Jewish community. Elizabeth and I were in Paris. There's a Jewish community. You go to North Africa, there's a Jewish community. You go to India, Jewish community. You go to Latin America, there's a Jewish community. You go everywhere, there are Jewish communities. Why? Because they have been dispersed. It's called the diaspora, the diaspora, whatever you want to call it, the dispersion. But they were dispersed never to come back. So you have the Russian Jews, you have the Eastern European Jews, you have the Greek the who are Jews, et cetera, et cetera. And they never came back, by the way, and this is not my sermon today, until 1948. It's 722 BC. They never came back till 1948 AD. That's in the lifetime of some of you older ones. That's when they started to come back. That's when the Russian Jews came back. That's when the Eastern European Jews came back. That's when the Jews from the Near East came back in 1948 and following. So the northern kingdom is gone. The southern kingdom where Jerusalem still is there. And for the next 120 years from 722 to about 586, it actually started about 605, the Babylonians now started taking the Jews away. They took Daniel away. They took Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego away. They all started taking them away. And then finally in 586 BC, they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed it. It's all in the book. You can read it. The destruction of Jerusalem. And they all went to Babylon. That's 586. And they stayed there approximately 70 years. Some stayed longer. Some died. Their kids, their grandkids. And they started coming back. And when they came back, the three books that talk about that in the history are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So do you have that now? Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are after the exile. Everything before in the Bible is about all the main part of the Bible that we understand. Afterwards, they came back. We're going to talk about the coming back. There's Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther was in Persia, so she stayed up there. Now, what's so important about the 500s B.C.? That's when Confucius was born. That's when Buddha was born. That's when Zoroaster was born. Three of the major religions of the world, their founders were born there. That's when the Greek culture was born. That's when Heraclitus, those of you who are mathematicians know the Pythagorean theorem, Pythagoras was born in the 500s BC. There was a whole new world that has been established at this time that wasn't there let's call it in the olden times of David or Moses or these other people. And then what's interesting, and this is important to know, and we're going to talk about it next week because it plays into the Christmas story, the kingdoms, there was the Babylonian kingdom, the Egyptian kingdom, the this kingdom, the Syrian kingdom, the that kingdom. Now there became empires And there was an empire, the first real empire of the world. They might have called them earlier, but it was the Persian Empire. The Persians controlled Africa, 
much of Asia, excluding China, and much of Europe. One nation state, which now became an empire. And that's why Esther did what she did, because one empire controlled all the problems. And when they wanted to kill the Jews, remember that story in Esther? They want to kill the Jews. They wanted to kill them in all the places of the world. Why? Because the diaspora, the diaspora, the dispersion, the Jews were everywhere. You couldn't just go to Jerusalem and kill the Jews. You had to go everywhere to kill the Jews. And that's the whole story of Haman and Esther and Mordecai. If you haven't read the book of Esther lately, it's a great book of the salvation of the Jews, not in Jerusalem, that too, but all over the world. Now, that's the 17 books. You should read them sometime. They're fantastic. Now there's five books in the middle. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. These are the books of poetry. Job most likely was written in the time of Genesis. Psalms were written from the time of Moses through the time of Solomon, maybe even a little after, most of it's with David. Then, of course, you have Proverbs. Most of that was written by Solomon. Some was written by others, but in and around Solomon's life. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon. Song of Solomon, written by Solomon. So you have these poetic books. Then you have the books no one looks at at all. And that's the last 17, and that's where we're going to be today. These 17 can be divided in two groups, 5 and 12. Do you get the math? 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Five books of Moses, the 12 books of history, the five books of poetry, the five books of the major prophets, What are they? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're the ones we know about. You know the story of Daniel. We know we read about Isaiah. We know a little about Jeremiah, a little less about Ezekiel, and even a little less about Lamentations, but we know something about them. We're going to leave them alone today. And then there's 12 books called the Minor Prophets. This is the books that we know very little about except for Jonah and the fish. So how does that start? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and then the last three books are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The last three books of the prophets match the last three books of history. The last three books of the prophet are after they come back. The Jews come back to Jerusalem And so they're talking about a very different world than the rest of the book. Here's the thing. You talk about Ruth. Let's think of Ruth. If you don't realize, Ruth lived about 850 B.C. Esther, excuse me, not 850, I apologize, 1150 B.C. Esther lived about 450 B.C. Do you realize we're closer to Henry VIII than Ruth was to Esther. You know, we think, oh, Ruth and Esther, they must have been known each other. No, they're 650 years apart. So, because what Esther did, what Haggai did, what these people did is after the main story of the Old Testament. But here's what we need to know. These stories over here take us 
to the New Testament. Without these stories that occurred after the exile, we would not understand the New Testament. Next week, we're going to go into that to understand how do we get to Jesus and Rome and Caesar Augustus and all the world should be taxed stuff. How do we get to that from this Old Testament? You get it through Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So do you have your Bibles? Turn to Haggai. And I'm going to have Elizabeth. There's two chapters. I'm going to have Elizabeth read chapter one. We're going to look at chapter one and chapter two. Uh, We'll start with chapter one today, and I have Elizabeth read it for us. Haggai chapter one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. 
Amen. There's a lot here, but if you read it, you'll begin to understand what is going on. Let me give you one last piece of history. When they were coming back from Persia down and coming back from the exile, they were exiled by the Babylonians, but the Persians took over the Babylonians in those 70 years. So now they're coming back from the Persians. They came back in waves. There were three waves of people that came back. In the first wave, one of the people that came back was Ezra. And we know the book of Ezra and helped to reestablish people, their worship and understanding who God is. In the second wave came Nehemiah. And we know the story of Nehemiah. The problem with when we study Nehemiah, we usually study it as a leadership book, and we don't study it as a guy who did what God called him to do, which was to rebuild the wall. So Ezra rebuilt the worship, Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, and in that third wave, and a part of that third wave was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel means born in Babel or born in Babylon, Zerubbabel. He was born in Babylon, but came down and he became the governor and really was called to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed 70 or so years before. And so apparently, and we learned this from the book of Ezra, they started rebuilding the temple and stopped. 16 years prior to this writing, they stopped. And so they haven't been rebuilding the temple. Now pick up the reading here. You see something here you rarely see in the Bible. And this is a post-exilic or post-exile. We get this because we know exactly, historians know exactly when Darius, the king of Persia, lived and when he ruled. He started his rule in 522 B.C., before Christ, 522. It says here, on the first day of the month, excuse me, in the sixth month, on the first day of that month, in the second year of Darius. We're subtracting, so 522 minus two is 520. It's the year 520 in the sixth month. We're in a Jewish calendar. The sixth month begins on August 29th. On the first day, of that month, the sixth month. So this writing occurred August 29, 520 BC. Rarely can you say that about anything in the Bible. We know the exact day that this was started, this was written. And at the end of the chapter, read at the end on verse 15. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. We start on the first day of the sixth month. This whole chapter takes place in 23 days. One from 24 is 23. It's three weeks. Three weeks this whole thing occurs. So many times we think when people change their ways, it takes years to do it. They change their ways in three weeks. What did they do to change? Let's look at it. Here's the problem. Verse 2. This is what the Lord says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So you know Jerusalem. I've described it so many times. And if you see the pictures, the Temple Mount is the highest point in Jerusalem. And all the houses are around the temple, at least three sides. The one side is a valley. And so the three sides, it's all houses. They've all been destroyed. 
they come back, they start, they build the wall around and they start building the temple, stopped 16 years ago. So they go, you know what? We're gonna build our houses. And all the houses below this empty mount, it's not a mountain like this, it's a mountain like this. It's empty and it has nothing but rubble on it. And they kind of left it and go, you know, one day we're gonna get to that. One day we'll get to that. And God said, when is it, are you gonna get to working on me? When is it? We all know we need to, but when is it that we're going to do it? Have you ever known anybody like that? I know I need a relationship with Jesus. I know I need a relationship to God. I know I need to live the right life. I know I need to be better. I know I need to give more. I know this. I know I need to be better to my family or whatever, but I'll get to it later. And God says, Okay, when is later? Why not right now? On the first day of the second month in the year 520 BC. He puts a date to it. It's so beautiful. People go, oh, you know, someday I'll do it. Well, the someday came in three weeks. They made this whole decision in three weeks. And why did, if you were to title this book, it's in verse five. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Just decide what you're going to do. Consider them. Why? Because you go back to verse 3 and to verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins. This is incredible. I don't know if you get what paneled houses are. Paneled houses nowadays, you think of sometimes people panel their family room and they put, you go to Home Depot or Lowe's or to the store and you buy paneling, right? Or you buy wallpaper or you buy fabrics or you buy draperies. They're all made They're all fabriced out. They're all prefab done. And then you tack them or attach them or do something with a rod or whatever it is you're going to do to make your house more beautiful. This is not what they did. They had to make these by hand. If they were going to panel their house, they had to go and hewn the wood and hewn this. If they were going to do it with tapestries and with cloth, which is another definition of paneling, paneling with uh, materials, they had to create it, they had to weave it, they had to make it. This is a long process of doing to make their houses beautiful. So they ended up having these beautiful houses all up and down the Jerusalem hills, and at the top of Jerusalem is God's house in ruins. Can you see it? It's amazing that it's in total ruins, but they've kind of ignored it by saying, someday we'll deal with that. Someday I'm gonna deal with it. We're gonna deal with it. Don't get off my back. We're gonna deal with it, but we'll deal with it someday because I've gotta deal with my house. And you kind of put that. Now, he goes on to say, there are five things that are not going well for the people. Verse six, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat and never have enough. You drink and never are full. You clothe yourselves, but are never warm. You earn wages, and it's like you've put them in a bag with a hole. 
five things. Your harvest, your eating, your drinking, your clothing, your money are not enough. Now, this would be an easy point if I were a prosperity gospel person, I could say, give more to God, he's gonna give more to you, right? Just let's give to God and he's gonna give to you. I don't say that. What I say is, is that what God gives you will be enough if you acknowledge that he is the giver of all good gifts. Do you see the difference? It's interesting, we've been going through the seek first and you know, some people naturally have some issues with giving to God, I get it. And um, I have a friend who sits over in this side so I won't look over there because all of you might think I'm looking at you. But everybody says I always mock this side. This is the good side this morning, you're the good side. He says to me, he said, I'd rather have 90% blessed by God than 100% blessed by me. He says 90% will go farther if God is blessing it than 100% will go if I'm blessing it. You see, that's what he's saying here. He's not saying you need more money, you need more harvest, you need more drink, you need more clothes, you need more food. What he's saying is God is, you're always kind of hungry. You don't have enough. And he's saying, you're gonna have enough. You will have enough. I will supply your needs. He's not saying, I'm gonna give you as much as I give them or them or them. I'm gonna give you enough that you need because you're considering my ways. I hope you get that. It's not a prosperity thing that if I give a dollar, he's gonna give me back $5. I give $100, I get 500, I give. But you know what? Here's the thing. God does give back, but we only think of money. This is the thing. I do believe God gives back five, 10, 50. He even says in the New Testament, 60 and 100 times. But we always, because we're good Americans, always think that's money. If I give $100, he's gonna give me 60 times that? Whoa, I am gonna give the $100. But what he might give is 60 times something else. Here's the thing. Thank you, Matthew, for sharing what you all did this week. When you realize we give 10% of our budget to World Lead. So our budget is somewhere in the three millions, three and a half, I'm sorry, I'm not thinking clearly on exact number. So that's $350,000, $400,000 we give to missions. And then you all give more and we do more. So it's probably five or $600,000 a year we give. We are helping millions of people with that. Not tens and twenties and thirties, millions. And how do I know this? Because we're helping people who are helping people who are helping people who are helping people. And they have told us how many in this country and that country. And so when he said there were thousands in the Philippines, it's, they, it's amazing. See, the work that you do, the giving that you give is multiplied. You're not getting money back. You're not gonna get any money back. But your influence is multiplied 10, 20, 50, 100 fold. That's what he's saying here. Consider your ways. What they were considering were only their things. And when they only considered their things, they never had enough, right? Is that true? I just need a little more. I don't have enough. I need more. I don't have enough. I need more. But the Bible says that if you consider your ways and you do the things of God, he will supply your need. 
That's why I go back to the seek first. Seek first is in Matthew 6, where we were talking the last month and a half. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. All these things added unto you, it's different than from you to you to you. Because I don't know all the things you need added to you. But God knows, because you're seeking first the kingdom. You're seeking first God. Now, here's the difference. And this is what we're going to get into next week. The difference is, in the Old Testament, it was a physical location. Right? There was a promised land. There was a temple mountain. You went to the temple to do your sacrifice, right? It was a physical land. There was a physical side to this. Then Jesus comes along and says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is there. You see, the kingdom is where the king is. It's not in Jerusalem anymore. You are a part of the kingdom of God. It's an amazing thing. And we're going to talk about that next week. I want to get it to why Jesus, because we move from a physical land to a spiritual kingdom, from a temple to a Christ, from the temple to the Messiah, a person, Jesus Christ. So our worship is to Christ. Our worship is not to a place in Jerusalem. Nothing wrong with going to Jerusalem and worshiping, but you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. And no longer did you belong to the people of the Jews. They were to teach us that we belong to the church. And that's where we're heading with this. And these last three books tell us that and get us to the story of Jesus coming to earth. Now, what happened? He said, consider your ways. In verse 8, he says that I, uh, well, let me start in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways again. Now, so that's the second time. Go up to the hills, that's the hills outside of Jerusalem, bring wood and build the house, the house of the Lord. Number one, that I may take pleasure in it. God loves when you do his work. God loves and takes pleasure when you do his work. It is an amazing thing. You can know the pleasure of God. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The work you do for God gives him pleasure and glorifies him. There's all kind of language in the Reformation saying that we were born to glorify God. You and I were born to glorify God and to give him pleasure. And these people knew it, but didn't do it. They knew they had to do it at some point, but they didn't do it. And I think at times we know to do it and we don't do it. Now, we don't have to build a temple in Jerusalem, but the things God has called us to do. And then go down to verse 13. Then Haggai, well, let's go to 12, the end of the 12. And so all this thing was going on, and they're talking, and then the last part of verse 12 says, and the people feared the Lord. Here's the difference. Do you do the things of the Lord just out of obligation, or is there a fear? Now, fear isn't like, I'm afraid. Fear is awe. There is some afraid part of awe, but there's a sense that God is bigger than us, and there's, wow, and you fear him. 
If you don't understand that, read the book of Psalms, which is the poetry book that tells us about the fear of the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger, verse 13, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And here's the Lord's message. I am with you. If you forget everything else I've said today, consider your ways because God wants to be with you. God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to take pleasure. He wants to be glorified. But you know what? If you don't glorify him, the rocks and the stones are going to glorify him. He'll live if you don't glorify him. But he wants to be with you. That's such a beautiful thing. God wants a relationship with me and with you. Isn't that amazing? We don't get that in the Old Testament. We kind of get this corporate coming together. But as we move to the New Testament, remember, this is heading us to the New Testament. There's a sense that I am with you. And so you know what they did? They went out to the hills, bought the wood, and built the temple. Now, here's the thing that this doesn't tell you, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little next week. The temple they built was not as nice as Solomon's temple. See, Solomon had all the wealth of the world. These people were poor exiles. They're refugees coming back to a land that had no resources, that hadn't been tilled in 70 years. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have, see, it's not about that. See, that's the beautiful thing of the picture that uh, Matthew showed us of those kids playing in a um, ghetto in uh, Manila. Did you see the picture? Did you see it? What's the difference between them and us? This air conditioning. These seats. My clothes cost more. I have great glasses on. I have a microphone. But what else is different? Nada. Nothing. You see, God loves them and is with them. God loves us and is with us. And he wants us to consider our ways. Whether we're here, whether we're old, whether we're young, whether we're American, whether we're not American, some of you are listening from all over the world, wherever you are, consider your ways. God loves you, wants to be a part, and he's asked us to do something for him that he can take pleasure in and be glorified. And that's what takes us and begins to settle us into the purpose and reason why Jesus came to earth because we're gonna find out we cannot do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own. It requires God to do it for us. And that is the story that we're gonna come up to in the next week and then to the time of Christmas. Now, I wear glasses. How many of you wear glasses? Okay, this is one of those empirical things. You can't lie about it, right? Raise your hand. Be proud of it. Yes. Okay. It is miserable wearing glasses. <laughs> you people that don't wear glasses don't get, have a clue of the humidity when you walk in and out of these rooms and outside and it's raining and people think when I'm running across the street in the rain that I give a rip about my clothes. No, I'm covering my glasses. I could care less getting wet. I don't want my glasses. I can't see. 
Now, some of you can see far but not short. Some of you can see short but not far. That's all that far-sighted, near-sighted. I never get what's right and what's wrong. I don't get it. I can't see either. <laughs> so some, uh, some people, you know, take their glasses off to read. Some take their glasses off to look at, to drive. I have to have my glasses off on all the time or I'm not going to see anything. So I have a problem because I stand up here and I have to read small print and then look at you 100 feet away at the same time without losing focus. It is very difficult because either, you know, I'm looking, I can see, I don't do this and do this. I'm blind, so I have to. But some people can do that. I can't. I have to get. And so I went to my eye doctor. She's great. Years ago, when I first started preaching and having to do this, I said, I have to be able to see 18 inches from me, this little print, and then I need to see hundreds of feet away and not lose focus. She goes, I can do it. I go, really? Because everybody I see wear glasses. They're kind of this, and they're twitching, and they're focusing, and they're going like this and going like this. And I go, it's so distracting. I don't want to do it. She goes, I can do it. She goes, I put the far up here, I put the near down here. I'm like, is this new? She goes, no. But she said, what is, is I put something in the middle. And it's what's in the middle that lets me focus immediately on this and on this. Now, don't ask me what it is. I don't have a clue how they make these things. They call them progressive and transition lenses and all these big words. But here's the thing. I can see the fine print, and I can see you at the same time. This is what God is calling us to do. We need to see what he has called us to do, specifically me, Bill Mitchell. I need to see it, understand it, do it. And then I need to see the world and see how this plays out with this. And you can't do it without some lenses. And many of us think we can do it on our own. And many times we can throw money at you, you know, and uh, I help people and I help people. And, oh, I'm doing a few good things about me as well. But let me tell you, it's the scriptures and Jesus Christ that brings it all into focus. And without it... You miss it. And you see, the people here thought they were doing what was right because they were getting the close right. They were getting their families. They were getting their houses done. They were getting it. But they weren't getting that they got to do something for God out there. They missed it. And yet it was right there in front of them because they didn't have the eyes to see it. And God is saying, consider your ways Get this and get this. And it can only be done with spiritual eyes. The physical eyes don't do it. These glasses is just a representation of what God does in our life. Let's bow and pray.